Conversations podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Conversations podcast. Uh, today, I am very lucky to have with me two amazing interpreters, Cynthia Lee and Sylvia Martinez. Thank you very much for joining me today, ladies. Pleasure. Um, Absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. It is my pleasure indeed. Uh, today, we're going to have a bit of a chat about the recommended national standards for working with interpreters in courts and tribunals. Um, let's refer to it as the standards or RNS moving forward, because it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, now, we know that uh, the standards were introduced in 2017, uh, which is uh, around well, well, four years now, going on to five. Um, but, you know, are they being implemented? Um, are the courts giving uh, the interpreters enough? preparation material? Are they giving any support? Are LSBs giving any support? Um, are the interpreters aware of their responsibilities and their rights? There's a few things we're going to talk about today. Um, and uh, we are, like I said, very lucky to have Cynthia and Sylvia with us uh, who have been working with the standards within regards to even very, very early stages um, uh, as Sylvia was uh, uh, as part of the uh, the research team there, and Cynthia is now also uh, working with, um, I guess, UNSW, OZIF as well, uh, and, and getting in getting the word out there, training interpreters and um, other stakeholders in regards to uh, the standards. So uh, we are going to have a little bit of a chat about all these topics, and hopefully we, we cover a few little things, and particularly about um, their experiences. Uh, now, Cynthia is a NATI certified interpreter and translator uh, in Spanish and holds a degree in English philology from the University of Deusto in Bilbao, Spain. And um, she's been working in Australian courts and tribunals since 2011. So uh, marking the decade this year, uh, must have started her career very, very early because we definitely can't see the years uh, on her face at all. So, and Sylvia Martinez as well, um, very, very experienced NATI certified interpreter translator, uh, again, in the Spanish language. Um, she graduated uh, the Diploma of Interpreting and Translation at Western Sydney University in 2001. And uh, she's been working with Professor Sandra Hale as well. Um, we're gonna talk about this on the project that led to interpreter policies, practices, and protocols in Australian courts and tribunals published all the way back in 2011, probably when uh, just around when Cynthia started. Um, so it's giving you an indication about the age difference that I'm not sure I'm too happy about. Just I, throwing I, that I, out there. Yeah, I'm not really sure that we're getting this. Uh... <laughs> I wasn't expecting this focus. <laughs> you, have, you have both started your careers extremely, extremely early. And it's not even, and it's not even our first careers, I would say. So Obviously. certainly not mine. <laughs> I started my career a lot, a lot earlier than that. But I have been living in Europe and in Australia. You know, like like a boomerang going yeah. there and back, and so uh, with I started in courts ten years ago, but I have obviously been interpreting and translating for many other decades. Um, indeed, so very lucky to have you both here. How's everything going? Uh, I know you're both uh, in lovely sunny Sydney today. How's everything going there, Cynthia? Uh, it's going well. Still in lockdown, uh, but very busy. At least we didn't get an earthquake today. That's right. Yes, that's what we're uh, we're noting we're noting in, in Melbourne today, and likewise for me. I'm in one of those 
local government areas of concern. So the um, but but look from a from a work perspective, it means that the nature of the the nature of some of the work has changed. Um, but uh, thankfully, I'm um, like Cynthia, also quite busy from a, um, a a range of perspectives. So I feel very fortunate to have. A, you know, good home to work from, um, to be uh, to be healthy, to have the the resources to deal with this awful situation that has been so so difficult for so many people. Sylvia, can you tell me in a nutshell, just uh, so that our viewers, our listeners, um, have a bit of an idea of what the RNS is? Can you just briefly tell us in a nutshell what this is? A little bit of a history, what it's trying to do. Let's create a bit of a context. Um, I know we've done already a few uh, episodes with Ludmilla Stern on this, uh, Professor Ludmilla Stern from UNSW. And I think but- Cynthia has been a part of those of those sessions as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, but look, it is. It, I think it's a, it's a good question actually to to start with, and not just to assume that we all know what it is. Uh, but I tell you, in in a single word, for me, <laughs> recommended national standards are an excellent tool, an excellent tool as a, as a central document that consolidates um, the, the, uh, the documents really, what is required to work with interpreting services in courts and tribunals, and it makes specific recommendations not only for interpreters where, you know, things are usually aimed at interpreters and what we have to do to make sure that we provide a good service, but they include recommendations for for court administrators so for the you know for the way that interpreters are booked to work within a court um, for judicial officers themselves so that means how to run um, hearings with in, with the use of interpreting services with interpreters and it also provides uh, standards requirements if you like for legal practitioners so basically these are standards that are aimed at every person working within the administration of courts and tribunals and that um, so they're obviously not standards for the citizens or residents or whatever you know for the people that come into contact with those courts and tribunals but anybody who's got a job within that system whether we are interpreters or judges or tribunal members or solicitors or barristers uh, these standards are for us So what that means is that they are a chunky document. Um, They're a document that is available online, free of charge, um, and and certainly um, we, I think both Cinta and I do deliver professional development um, in in different areas with with our colleagues. And and whenever I'm dealing with uh, any aspect of legal interpreting, then the, the standards are part of the professional development uh, that that we do because they are an essential tool. It means that, you know, I don't tell people to, to, to read 160 pages of it, but I do ask my colleagues to become comfortable and, um, and conscious of, you know, the different bits in the table of contents that take us to different standards, that we use it as an ongoing tool, like we might use our code of ethics as well, where it's not something that I'm going to be reading um, every week, but I will be going back to specific areas in my code of ethics mm. to think about um, particular situations that I'm finding a bit difficult. These are even more practical than that. A really important tool, I would say. Um 
on that note, I'm going to say that it is available in a book form like this as well, very nicely covered. Uh, you know, it's not just one or two pages of guidelines, you know. It's actually quite comprehensive, 125 pages to be exact. Um, you can order the hard copy document from the uh, JCCD website, but you can also, it's readily available online as a PDF as well. You can download for free. I will put the website and the link in the episode description for everyone to have access to that, okay? That's fantastic. And look, there are also small fact sheets um, with that. So, for example, there's a two-page fact sheet for mm. judicial officers. There's um, a, a, a two-page fact sheet, which is an overview of the... So there are also tools around it that um, that are helpful. And, of course, what's really important, depending on the jurisdiction that we work with, is that a significant recommendation that these standards hold is that they be implemented into the actual workings of the, of the various courts and tribunals around the state. And where, in, in the case, at least, for example, in the... Um, in the case of New South Wales, in the civil jurisdiction, the Supreme Court has incorporated um, these standards as part of a practice note and as part of the uniform uh, the uniform civil procedure rules. So these are in the civil jurisdiction in New South Wales. They're no longer recommended standards. Mm. They are law. Wow, that that that's an amazing um, difference, isn't it? Absolutely. <clears throat> If I may add to this, um, for me, the, uh, the standards are all of that and more. For me, what they are uh, is a recognition that interpreters are part of the court system when we are talking about interpreted proceedings. So when we are talking about traditional monolingual court settings, the interpreter is not required and the court will have to conduct their activities in a certain way. However, when there are uh, when we are dealing with interpreted proceedings, there's a new element that comes into play, and that is the interpreter. And there's that recognition that it is the interpreter is part of the system when, it's, when the interpreter is required, and that there, is, has, there has to be an interaction amongst all the participants. And unless that interaction takes place, we are still dealing in a monolingual setting plus an interpreter, and that mm. It's not going to work. And so it's the, the participation of uh, everybody like in court, like interpret, the interpreter is one more of those participants and their responsibility is put on everybody to achieve effective communication. Very well said, both of you. Thank you very much. Um, look, we know that, um, like we said, Professor Ludmilla Stern is uh, currently conducting a study, uh, doing some research, investigating the implementation of the recommended national standards in Australian courts and tribunals. Um, and that, that, that study is still going ahead. And um, uh, what I would like to know is, as interpreters yourself, some of your experiences in courtrooms regarding these standards, you know, are they being implemented? How uh, how are they being implemented? Are you pushing them to be implemented or do they just fall into your lap? Um, you know, so these are some of the things that I want to ask you. Uh, Cynthia, if I might start with you, um, let's have a chat particularly about receiving preparation material. Now, uh, we know that this is, it's, it's like gold, isn't it? It's very hard to get your hands on. No one knows where it is. No one knows who's supposed to give it to you. Um, we don't even know if we're supposed to be asking for it or anything. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, receiving preparation material, why it's so important? How do we get our hands on it? Um, how does it happen? Just talk us through it. And 
so just recently, I think you went to a case and, and you were able to get your hands on some preparation material and, and how that affected your work. Can you fill us in a little bit on that, please? Certainly. Look, first of all, I'm going to answer your question why it's important. Uh, when you arrive in a court uh, case and you are the only person who knows nothing about the case, um, that's not going to lead to effective communication. If you are the communicator facilitating the communication there, that's not going to happen for a number of reasons. If you don't have the required um, preliminary understanding of the matter, if you have no understanding of what the perspectives of each party is in relation to the matter, um, what they're going to be asking, you cannot anticipate, you cannot predict anything, you are just swimming through a fog where you cannot see. The result of what you're going to be interpreting is not going to be uh, understood or understandable by the other person because you yourself don't even understand it. Let's face it. And this is when you arrive in the middle of a movie and you don't understand, you hear the words, but you don't understand what's going on. That is what's going to happen. It is essential to undertake preparation in terms of um, um, terminology. and can be any type of terminology that you have it ready here at the front of your head here to ready to come out the second that you need it. If you don't know what terminology is going to come up in a court case, the terminology might be at the back of your head and it might just not come out when you need it. So the same as all the other participants are ready to start the court case, so should the interpreter, because we are another one of the professionals working in court on that matter. So is it easy, is it difficult to um, get hold of this material? It is extremely difficult. I've, I've never had a case where I have arrived in court or even before arriving in court, I've been contacted to say, here's your material. No, I've always had to ask for it. But I do always ask for it, always, always. And I tell you what, in the last maybe two years, a year and a half, two years, I have not worked in court without the materials. So it is possible you do have to uh, ask for it and you ask for it through the uh, language service provider in advance if it is, say, a district court case. Um, good luck with that. You may or may not get it. Or when you arrive in court, that's the first thing you do. When I arrive in court, the first thing I do is, and we will this probably talk about the hearing loops, is ask for the hearing loop and ask for the materials as soon as I set foot inside the court or outside sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, so it's, that like is a, it's like a word I've never heard of before in a courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> so I arrive and they know. They know that this interpreter is going to be asking for this. And if they say no, I don't take no for an answer. They must love either. you. They see you and they go, hey, our favourite interpreter is coming. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what happens when they see what happens when the interpreter has everything that she yeah. has asked for. But um, in... So that's what I do. I do ask for the materials. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't in advance, but I do get it when I get there somehow or other. It is probably the best option is to go to the prosecutor of the matter because they tend to have all the information that you need. So in the local court, you will need the fact sheet and in the district court, you will need the uh, statement of facts. And, you know, depending on what's going to happen on the day, what you're going to be doing, you might be requiring expert, uh, expert witness statements, witness statements, whatever it is that you're going to be doing on that day. Now, we did have a, a, a case recently. Well, actually, it's not that recently anymore. I think it was in March <laughs> where it was a, a, a trial in the district court. And I did, I, as usual, I asked for all the materials in advance and I listed to the uh, language service provider everything that I needed for the, uh, for 
like I just told you, the statement of facts, the names of the prosecutor and the barrister, um, including all of these names that are, are going to be coming up and I need to repeat and I probably don't even understand them when they happen. No? Um, and the expert witness statements, all the witness statements. And it was like a miracle that I received everything in advance. And through through the LSP, through the agency, you asked. This so amazing. through the agency, because I believe that is the correct way to do it. Well done because we agency. have been booked yeah. by them. So up until the moment that you step foot in the courtroom, you are to deal through the LSP. The moment that you are in court, that's you directly to deal with whoever is there that you have to deal with. And Cynthia, um, if if I if I may, just a, a brief incision in that. Sure. It is absolutely fundamental for the language service provider to assume the responsibility that they uh, they are not only they don't only have the contract which means the business for the organisation, they have the responsibility to train their administrative staff to understand what it is that interpreters do, and to understand that this work is essential. So. We will often get, and we still get, when we ask for information, those of us who ask for information will often get, I've never heard an interpreter asking for that information. Mm. That is difficult enough to get from the end user of the interpreting service. It is absolutely awful when we get it from um, people employed by the language service providers. And we get it from those from people employed by language service providers as well. I've actually I have stopped working with certain um, LSPs precisely because it was like year after year having the same conversation with the same staff and never any movement in terms of understanding a basic respectful aspect of what service is it that you're selling as a company. Mm. You're selling my work to go and, you know, and apply my language skills to this situation. The very minimum that LSPs must do is understand what it takes to provide that quality that, you know, that I'm sure they are offering mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. that, that they need to have a role in, um, in, in assisting us to uh, have the conditions that we need to do our work well. And, and that is probably something that should probably need to be added to the recommended national standards at one point is the role of the language service mm. providers. I was just well. going to say that there, there's room for that to be added in here then, you know, Certainly, we're talking about yes. this is this is a team effort. The responsibility exactly. doesn't just lie with the interpreter or the court officers. Um, and if I can bring right. it, so if I can bring it out of the standards, actually, because the standards, I mean, you know, we say that 2016, they don't hold anything that hasn't been discussed for many years beforehand. And in okay. this aspect, there's a specific, so I mentioned previously a code of ethics, the OSIT code of ethics and code of conduct, which most, at least all the, all the language service providers that I know in Australia certainly require interpreters, whether they're members of OSIT or not, to work according to that code of ethics and code of conduct. That code of ethics requires interpreters and translators to seek background information so that we understand the context that we're working mm -hmm. with. It is part of our obligation. But in the standard that talks about maintaining professional relationships, it also clearly states, that code of conduct clearly states that any organisation that requires interpreters to abide by the code of ethics must assume the responsibility for us to be able to meet that code of ethics. Mm -hmm. And that means supporting interpreters and translators as well in actually acquiring that information. Now, this particular version of the code of ethics that I'm talking about has been around since 2012. Yeah. Before that, 
Um, you know, we've had a code of ethics in this industry since 1997, 97. I think. Um, so, like, this is not new. And yet we Absolutely are still, in new. 2021, having conversations with people that are working within our industry mm-hmm. and selling the services, having conversations about why it is essential for interpreters to access information before we go to work. Now, specifically now, we're talking about courts and tribunals, you know, which is somebody could go to jail exactly. as a result of bad interpreting. So the exactly. impact is huge. But it's not only, of course, in courts and tribunals that this is absolutely essential. It doesn't matter the context that we're working in. We need to know how to apply the language skill. We need to. I think what you said earlier is key where the LSPs should train their administrative staff about the responsibilities and needs of an interpreter. Uh, Most of the time, uh, those lovely people at their phones might not really know how an interpreter works. That's right. Unfortunately, I get the feeling that we have been talking about this for a very long time, but I do get the feeling that sometimes the booking officers don't quite believe it, if I may say so, because... Even though I speak to the same booking offices over and over and over again, I still get the odd one that all of a sudden will say to me, oh, but it's only one hour sentencing. You don't need to know anything. It's very easy in the trial, you know, in, after a trial in the district court. They have no understanding. And so, you know, we have discussed this hey, and hey, they still don't get it. So just, I think there is just- something else there. We've just uh, discovered a gap in training, I think. Uh, so it's something to be something to be focusing on. Absolutely, there is so much training needed at so many levels. Um, so, with with this particular case that um, you said you got the material for at the district courts, and you got all the material from the LSP. So well done to the LSP there, getting all that to you, um, and then when, when did you get it? Was it a day before, a week before, on the day? So, look, I don't ask for the materials a long time in advance because things change a lot before you get to court. Things have been happening, you know, uh, between the prosecution, the defence and whatever. So there's no point for me um, in asking for the materials in advance. So I wait for one week before the, the trial begins to ask for the materials. And so I get them, you know, a few days, three days, say, before mm. the trial. And I don't need much more. I don't need, I can get them the day before and I would still have probably time to prepare. That's fine. But I will, at least I would get the most up-to-date information. That's a, that's a good tip. Mm. And um, you got the information and uh, you went there and it was an amazing session. You got all your terminology. You knew what was going on. Um, and uh, that, that's hopefully the way things will be moving forward. So, yes, the interpreter needs to ask, ask through the LSP a few days in advance, so you're getting the, the most recent information and also giving yourself enough time to actually do a little bit of preparation as well. Um, and if I, if I, may, if I please, could mention please. there, the LSP contacted the court. The court did not have that information, so, but the court did contact the DPP. And the DPP went back with all the information. So it was the DPP that provided the information through the court, through the LSP. So, wow. and, and, and this is something that we could also discuss because there's a standards mentioned that one of the recommendations is the setup of a, an interpreter's portal, which m- would make a lot, life a lot easier for all of these in-betweeners, you know what I mean? Not so many steps. And that's something that we could maybe mention at some point as well. That's that, that's that's a great point, actually, yes. And I think that's that's one of the really 
you know, the really practical aspects. This is, at the end of the day, this is a process and it is actually a very high volume process. It's where, you know, each individual interpreter is that, I'm thinking about my case, but of course the, the legal system is working with um, hundreds and thousands of cases on a daily basis. And with the, the kind of country that we are, um, many interpreters from many different languages. So it is about thinking, you know, with that with that basic stuff, we were talking about the importance of a fact sheet. How difficult would it be to have the fact sheet as part of the booking system so that you get your booking and you actually, a fact sheet is generally a one or a two-page thing, but you, but you have fundamental stuff, which are, if you're talking, when you're talking about this kind of criminal case, you have the the charges, which are essential for the interpreter to know the kind of law that will be discussed. And from seeing the charges, you can also have a look at, you know, what are the sentencing options? So not, not so that you can make any analysis of how the case is going to go, but so that you can ready yourself in so both languages. Exactly, it? exactly. And then the other aspect that you have there is actually the facts. And that could mean, you know, that if somebody hit somebody else over the head with a power tool, I need to know that I know the name of that power tool, not only exactly. in English, where something might come up that I don't understand, um, but also that I know it in the other language as well. And that's an aspect that we don't think, you know, that very often people don't think about. They think that it's just about the legal terminology. No, it's not. It not. And it's, exactly. I think the, the case, um, that uh, case that you observed, um, Cynthia, at the same time as uh, this particular trial in, in March, when you observed that um, Chinese case that was uh, with the casino um, situation. Exactly right. We were observing a, a case, um, like uh, Sylvia just said, it was uh, Chinese was the language and it was a casino uh, something that happened inside a casino. And there was all this entire big set of terminology relating to casino and gambling. And I was I, I was observing and I was making lists of all the terms that were coming up during the proceedings. And I was thinking, how would I say any of this mm. in Spanish? I would not have a clue. And there you had an interpreter who had not been provided with any information, had not been provided with a, uh, a set of a hearing loop interpreting. And I think the trial went on for about eight weeks. Um, and so just 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 imagine Sandra Hill went there to observe as well. It was insane the amount of terminology that you really should have prepared in advance to be able to interpret. And uh, I, I wonder if that interpreter actually knew about the standards and, uh, you know, if, if, if he or she made any requests. Because by the sounds of it, it's like the interpreter has to drive this. It's not going to be all of a sudden, you know, oh, there you go, Mr. and Ms. Interpreter. Yeah. You know, here's, here's all the material for you to prepare for exactly. this massive eight-week case. We, we actually spoke to the interpreter and Sandra Hale was there as well and we talked to him and said to him, you have to request a second interpreter to begin with because you cannot handle eight weeks of this sort of level of interpreting. Uh, there were like four, no, maybe, I don't know if he was four or eight, or eight co-accused, although he was only interpreting for one of them. But it was a massive, massive trial. Um, but no, you are right. The interpreter has to be proactive. And unless the interpreter is proactive, she, he or she is not going to get anywhere and is not going to get anything. Interpreting. That's one of the things that needs to be proactive. Sorry, that's one of the things that needs to change, though. So at this stage, we need to be proactive. But this exactly. is, but this is something that needs to be, this is something that needs to become an improvement within the system. And I think Cinta actually pointed out, really made me 
think when she was saying earlier on that a really important thing for her from the perspective of the standards is that it really crystallises the role of the interpreter as a part of that system. Mm. And although the standards do that, the reality at the moment is that the majority of the system does not consider us part of the system. So we are very often, and not only in this kind of interpreting, but very often the interpreter is the alien in the room. We're the only ones that come in without knowing exactly what's uh, what's going on. If it is a situation that has been going on for quite a long time, there might have been different interpreters coming in at different stages. So we all, you know, with, with no with none of the benefits of that accumulation of knowledge that any other uh, professional who is a, a part of that uh, of that system would get. And in a way, it's it's like the system thinks, oh, here we have to interact with someone who doesn't speak English, so let's bring in an interpreter that is attached to that person who doesn't speak English, whereas we're not attached to anyone. We provide, you know, I interpret into Spanish and I interpret into English, which means that the service I'm providing is actually for the people that need to communicate. It's not just for the Spanish speaker. Mm. But but that this is something that the standards recognise, that the judicial officers who participated, who led the development of these standards, you know, all these members of the Judicial Council on Cultural Diversity um, that have produced this document, uh, th- these people all understand it. There are many people within the, within the uh, legal system that understand this notion but it's not the majority and the system itself doesn't understand it and that needs to be a change. So although there will always be the individual responsibility on the interpreter to make sure that we have what we need to do a good job and that we do what we need to to be prepared to do a good job, it shouldn't be up to the individual interpreter. Absolutely not. And you know the way I look at this, uh, Sylvia, the way I look at this is um, in procedural law, you have um, a requirement for the prosecution to um, serve the brief of evidence on the other party. It is a requirement. The way I see it, what we need to achieve is for it to be a requirement as well for all that material to be served or to be uh, given to the interpreter as part of the uh, procedure. That, that's, that's all that needs to happen. It just needs to be added there. And I see it's so, it's so simple, but... That's right. How do we achieve <laughs> it? How do we achieve yeah. it? <laughs> and, the, and the way that we would achieve it is, and this is another part of the recommended national standards, that didn't make it to the uniform civil procedure rules in uh, the civil jurisdiction in New South Wales, which is the consideration of the interpreter as an officer of the court. Whether the interpreter is engaged by the court or by one of the parties, it doesn't matter. The standards make really clear that the duties of the interpreter are to the court. And that, you know, completely natural for all those of us that are extremely conscious that we play an impartial role whenever we provide our services as as interpreters. Um, In in the in the in, in that if we are considered officers of the court, then that means that as the parties have to serve that information on each other and they do that through the court, it would be at that time when it comes into the court that all officers of the court, including interpreters, should be made aware that that information is there. And of course, the technological solution is have a secure portal exactly. where 
I get the booking, I access the information, I download the information that I need. You know, it is known that I work confidentially because that's one of the aspects that is constantly thrown at us for we get there, oh, no, you just have to turn up and interpret. And it's like, okay, I'll just take my Google Translate chip and just put it in there and, you know, I'll do whatever I can by just turning up and interpreting without understanding the subject matter at all. That's right. I'll just press the button and I'll just turn up and interpret. And the other one is, oh, no, this is confidential. And it's like, yeah, of course it's confidential. And that's, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I get that. That's the work that I'm supposed to be doing. So, Yeah, yeah. Sometimes before before you go to interpret and you ask for certain details that you are going to need, like the name of the person you're going to be interpreting for or certain aspects that are essential and they tell you it's confidential and you feel like saying, so when I go there and interpret, do you want me to cover my ears so you I cannot hear what you're saying because it's confidential? What do you mean by this? It's confidential two minutes earlier, so I, I am unable to prepare, but once I'm in the courtroom, it's no longer confidential for That's me. Right. I can receive this information, but it's too late for me to prepare. Yeah. Like, like, like Sylvia, you've been saying, I mean, we are supposed to be there also, you know, officers of the court, just like the judge, just like the prosecutor and the lawyers and everyone else that's there, you know, what is norm standard for them should be norm and standard for us. So it's not like there's a oh, Mr. Prosecutor or Madame Prosecutor, you can't have this information. It's uh, confidential. <laughs> it's confidential. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's exactly the same thing for exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah. And that's step out of the courtroom because we need to discuss this yeah. and we can't be here. <laughs> and that, oh. you know, and that is all, all about that systemic consideration of the role of the interpreter, as well as challenges in terms of the professionalization. Um, professionalization and us being seen as respected professionals. Uh, I mean, um, obviously, one of the problems as well is that we are external to the system. And it's, it's not we like are that's seen, a new thing, though. It's that's it's like that for decades. So they should adapt to yes. that. <laughs> yes, and but it's, so it's, they, sometimes it's like they pluck somebody from the street and they say, "Okay, this is the interpreter today. Interpret." But they, you see, they don't consider us part of the system because we are external. That is why they don't think that we have a right to access the information that they consider to be internal. Um. Let me ask you, within regards to the, the judicial officers, um, so the judges, let's say, uh, do they ever introduce you? Do they ever say, this is, uh, you know, Madame Interpreter, they'll be doing this? Um, there's this training video that um, I think UNSW prepared a few years ago, and the judge is like, Madame Interpreter will be interpreting in the consecutive mode when the witness is <laughs> asked a direct question, and when everyone is talking amongst themselves, Madame Interpreter will be switching to the simultaneous mode. I'm like... Oh wow, judge, you're awesome! Like I've never seen a judge do that before in my entire no. life, you know. No. Um, and I'm just wondering. Uh, that video is a bit old now, um, and you know, uh, since the RNS has been or the standards have been uh, put into action, how, how are the judges um, and the magistrates with their implementation and their uh, promotion of the interpreters and uh, and and the standards and how it affects them how, how, in your experience Sylvia you, Sylvia you might have a different experience but you get a little bit of everything that's the truth you know there are uh, some judges and magistrates who are very considerate of the interpreter and they will introduce the interpreter and will explain things and will explain the role of the interpreter um, you know and, and and it's excellent because you you know interpreters are supposed to be invisible but I 
that's only when you are interpreting. <laughs> you actually have to be a very visible part first so that you can get to the part of being invisible. Um, however, I have had some experiences and um, I'm going to tell you this that happened to me a few times already. When the, uh, And this is in the district court. When the judge starts uh, speaking to the jury and introducing everyone in court and then this person is this, this person is that, this person is the role is this. And then I'm thinking, are they going to mention me or are they not going to mention me? And they skip me. They explain the role of every single person in the courtroom down to the court officer and the court recorder and everyone except for the interpreter. And I, that has happened to me twice in the last two years. And I felt like turning to the defendant, to the accused and say, sorry, but can you see me or am I invisible? Because... What did you do, Cynthia? Did you, did you put well, your hand up Well, my eyes were... Well. <laughs> Hello, I'm here too. What did you do? <laughs> I didn't do anything. I froze. I completely froze and could not believe what was going on. I don't know whether, Sylvia, you have and had that experience. You, and you can't do anything. You, you can't do anything. Obviously not. The, the, it is unfortunate. Um, so, and, and when that is done well, um, it is really important. So uh, the last, uh, I think the last trial I worked in actually was um, the one that was of, it was in March as well. So about the same time, that was actually the last trial I, I, um, I worked in. And in that instance where... Um, the judge gave um, directions to the jury at the beginning of you know and the, and that that section is pretty substantial when the when the jury first comes in and they get all the instruction on what it is that they're supposed to do um, she actually spent a, a, a bit of time in introducing the so it wasn't a personal introduction as it shouldn't be um, it was an introduction in terms of what I would be doing and, and what it meant um, that um, the accused in that instance uh, required uh, uh, interpreting assistance. Um, and she actually made, um, just like, you know, she spent a fair bit of time talking to the jury about the fact that the accused didn't have to prove anything, that the whole burden of proof is on the prosecution. She also spent a bit of time saying that the fact that the person needed assistance with language was simply about him having the absolute right to be fully present in um, in his own trial um, and that it didn't uh, that the interpreter would not be providing any additional assistance uh, apart from ensuring that the person fully understood so when it's done well it's beautiful and where it is done well as a matter of system and that is the issue is in the what is now the administrative the the migration and the and the refugee review divisions of the administrative appeals tribunal, mm. and they have done it beautifully for many years, precisely because they don't take interpreters for granted. The majority of cases that go to the to the um, to the uh, migration into the refu refugee review divisions require interpreters that's why they developed an interpreter's handbook and they you know they trained their tribunal members on how to work with interpreters and in that instance as part of the introduction that the tribunal member does the tribunal member speaks directly to the applicant and tells them what the role of the interpreter is and the interpreter and the interpreter interprets 
what the role of the interpreter is. So they they do it beautifully and they do it consistently. They do it the same because it's part of their script. And that's that's the story about making things systematic. Exactly. Maybe the AAT offers a bit of training to the justice system, you know, there could be some like inter-organisational training going yeah. on. So why, you, why recreate the wheel when someone's absolutely, doing so well? Yeah. And um, another another one of the recommendations of the, the RNS are actually um, for, you know, for, the, for this uh, notion of impartiality and for, and for interpreters to have somewhere to prepare is for there to be an interpreter room. That's already there in the AAT. I, but I have to say, in my experience with the AAT, and I have done a lot of jobs for the AAT, is that yes, they do have a room for the interpreters, but that uh, and the interpreter is supposed to spend about fifteen minutes there, uh, but that time is wasted by the interpreter being on their phones doing whatever they want to do without any material, still in, no information whatsoever. So yeah, it looks good on paper. But in reality, it's the same as everywhere else. They don't give you the, even the names of the person that you're going to be interpreting. And, you know, at the beginning of the hearing, the, um, the hearing assistant has to uh, read out the names. I was there once for a hearing of uh, six people on the application. Um, as the Spanish stylist, people from Colombia, first name, middle name, first uh, surname and second surname, four names per person, four, six people all together. And she read them. I asked for that in advance. She refused to give them to me. And when the hearing started and the recording started, she read 24 names and then she asked me to repeat them. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I did ask for this in advance and you should have given it to me in advance. And yeah. the, the member got a little bit upset as well, saying, why then you give this to the interpreter. Again, it's that I, bet whole... you, I bet you that officer will do things differently next time. I, and <laughs> I tell you what, I have been fighting for this as well, and now everything is provided to me in advance. I have been educating them of as course. well. Before beginning, you get all the uh, information that you need. Absolutely. Thank, thank you to both of you and, and other, I'm sure, um, RNS leading interpreters like yourselves uh, for, for laying the groundwork and doing all the hard work for all of us out there. But we do have to definitely take a page out of your book and until it does become standard, as, as it says, <laughs> standard, we, we got to really push this. We've got to really drive this. And, and that's okay until we get there, you know. Yeah. Um, let's uh, just a few other things to quickly go through now that we're talking a little bit about the judges and their implementation uh, there's a few recommendations here um, for court officers like, I guess, judges and uh, lawyers and um, prosecutors and such. It says that they should be using plain English. Um, it says that they should be speaking at a speed where it's not too fast, considering the fact that there is an interpreter there. Um, it says that they shouldn't be, they should refrain from overlapping speech where consecutive interpreting is used, they should be pausing after each meaning chunk. I don't even know if they know what that means because it's such an interpreting term. Um, so uh, how, in your experience, how, how's this kind of going? Uh, are, are they, is this being implemented? Do you see plain English being used? Speed is being considered when interpreters there and so on. Um, Sylvia, let's start with you and Cynthia and then I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the same question. I think with with these things, it's, it's and it's actually probably not so much as a result of the RNS, but there's that I think there are different levels of consciousness about the importance of um, of this 
these kind of aspects. And they're not just for when interpreters are present. This is So what we need for good interpreting is what is needed for good communication. Mm. Um, so it does vary on d- d- depending on... Um, it does depend on the judicial officer very often. And certainly I think and and, and there are not just on the judicial officer but also in terms of the legal professionals, whether if someone is a good communicator, they'll generally do they'll generally speak clearly whether there is an interpreter or not. And there are people who are not great communicators. So unfortunately that's something that we need to deal with as well. But what I think what has happened to me frequently is when I'm interpreting consecutively um, for uh, where, where there's a, a, a witness that is providing uh, testimony through an interpreter um, and the witness tends to go on for a bit, um, judicial officers frequently cut in and make sure and they kind of say, you know, you've got to make room for the interpreting. I haven't asked for the room because... I'm actually okay at long consecutive, but they get impatient because they don't know what's going on. So well, they do the they do the discourse to, management yeah, yeah, for yeah. you. So they cut, yeah, that's right. Which actually sometimes makes my job more difficult because they're cutting at the wrong time. But <laughs> hey, um, but there is a level of consciousness there in terms of the ling when um, they need the service of the interpreter through that consecutive phase. But for example, when we're interpreting, you know, when we're interpreting simultaneously, which really, in any case, where the accused is, does not speak English and is represented, all of our interpreting or the great majority of our interpreting is in the simultaneous okay. mode. Okay. Now, at that stage, I've never had anyone telling the prosecutor to get, you know, their thoughts straight before they start speaking and going backwards and forwards and blah, blah. Um, so you've got to do what you can with um I must say simultaneous interpreting in that instance is actually easier because you're following closer to the person, so it's easier to match the going backwards and forwards um, that that is being delivered. But um, in this instance, the communication style is really an individual skill, irrespective of, you know, whether it's judicial officer, um, legal uh, representatives or or the people themselves and really as interpreters that's what we get to deal with and this is in in all contexts. Cynthia? Um, Look I agree with what Sylvia has said what I wanted to add is um, and this is something that has come up before in our discussions is when you are physically in court not during COVID during lockdown but uh, when you are physically in court and the accused is appearing via AVL for example where that's an instance where you cannot do simultaneous interpreting because the setup doesn't allow it so you have to be interpreting everything consecutively and perhaps the um, judicial officer will you know say yes we're going to do everything consecutively reminds the prosecutor reminds everybody to speak in chunks so that the interpreter can interpret and that happens for the first I don't know 30 seconds or so after that everybody forgets (laughs) and I can tell you that 100% of the times they forget and all of a sudden the interpreter is not giving a chance to interpret until maybe 10 minutes later the judge remembers oh the interpreter, sorry, everybody, stop because the interpreter has to interpret what has been said for the last, what, yeah. 10 or 15 minutes. And exactly what you mean. That, that happened to me once and the judge was like, okay, okay, we have to summarise. 
All right, so I'll just summarize and you interpret that. Yeah, <laughs> and for me... He was kind enough to offer that. Like, yeah, no, for me, and, and that's fine. And sometimes the, the problem is that it depends on the judicial officer. Some judicial officers prefer for all the um, exchanges to happen and then they do a summary for the interpreter to interpret to the app to the person, which is fine. The problem is that these things are not communicated to the interpreter in advance. So you are there and you don't know what they are expecting of you each time. So there's nothing standard. And that's I find that quite difficult because if you don't interpret, Madam Interpreter? Why are you interpreting? <laughs> and if you interpret and interrupt, Madam Interpreter, don't interrupt. So you just really don't know where you stand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I must say that the... I think the most positive experiences in that ambit have been, I generally, if I'm in that kind of situation, I I do tend to say, you know, Your Honour, since the person is appearing on audiovisual link, I won't be able to provide simultaneous interpreting, um, therefore everything, I need to have space for the interpreting to take place. And in instances where the judicial officer, in, in some instances, it's happened on a few occasions, they've then spoken directly to the accused, obviously through the interpreter, as well, mm. but they've said, this is what's going to happen now. Your solicitor is going to talk uh, with me and uh, with the uh, prosecution. Uh, these are all things, uh, these are all legal items that we need to discuss. At the end of that, I, you know, I'll be asking Madam Interpreter not to interpret that. At the end of that, I will explain to you what has happened. Yeah, I've, and those, I've and those have been really yeah. positive. Absolutely. Really, because it's, it's like, they're you know, it's their court. They can do that. But then the person yeah. knows, and, and obviously if the person is represented, they also have the opportunity to say whether they agree with that approach or not. Um, but it is a transparent approach. You know exactly what uh, what, what is going on and, and it works functionally. It works yeah. really well. Mm. Uh, um, Fatih, I wanted to, so sorry, I just wanted to add, in terms of the interpreter being fully prepared, and having the hearing loop and having everything they need, I don't find the need for everybody to adjust their speech, especially if you have uh, long proceedings and if you are lucky enough to have somebody working with you in tandem with you. Um, that is where and we're coming to the efficiency of the interpreting. In order for the interpretation to be efficient in terms of court's time and court's proceedings, if you give everything to the interpreter to organize themselves and to know exactly what they're doing in advance, especially if you're working with someone else as well, then the court doesn't need to stop for you. The court goes on. And this is, that's why for me, it's just so clear is the efficiency that the courts are not allowing to have in their own courts. And I don't get why, because interpreters who are trained and interpreters who can do the work, they can get everything done in the best possible way for the courts themselves. So and so can, that's you. what I wanted to say. That, 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 that's that's an uh, amazing thing you pointed out there, because then, you know, it gives them less to do. You know, they don't have to all of a sudden worry about their uh, speed. They don't have to worry about pausing. You know, let's give the interpreters what they need. Give them the preparation material. Let them prepare mentally um, as well as, um, you know, terminology-wise, knowledge-wise, contextual knowledge-wise. And it's going to make my life as a prosecutor or a lawyer, as a, as a judge, 
easier. Everyone. They wow. just do. They do Everyone. what they need to do. Everyone. Yeah. And in, and in this in this trial where that we were talking about before, that is exactly what happened. You could not even realize that there were two interpreters working in that case because no one needed to do anything for us during their proceedings. Yes, before the sessions, yes, we had the material, we had to prepare, we had to discuss this, that, whatever. But during the sessions, it was all conducted as if it was monolingual because interpreters were working beautifully for the courts. You, you and say, said, sorry, Sylvia. No, I, I was really just going to, to highlight, well, not to highlight, but to emphasise that for that to take place, there's the practical requirements that are there. And one of the practical requirements of the, the case that Cynthia is referring to is interpreters working in tandem, which is not questioned in, uh, you know, we're talking about a trial, which means multiple days. It'll start at 10 in the morning or sometimes earlier, and it'll finish at 4, 4.30, sometimes a little bit later. But it will at least go from 10 to 4 with a 20-minute break at 11 and with a one-hour break at 1. Currently, the expectation is that a single interpreter will service um, that trial, irrespective of how long it goes. The fact that having been employed, having had two in, in uh, Cynthia's case and in the case that I worked in, which was actually at the same time and in the same court precinct, different cases, but we both, the experience that we talk about with Ludmilla in um, the, the latest uh, In Touch in Ozzet's magazine, um, which is why you invited us, um, actually happened at the same time. It was in March um, of this year. And the, 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 the fact that we were allowed to work in tandem with a colleague was just because one of us had been booked for the accused and another one had been booked in the expectation that there would be witnesses providing uh, that would need a Spanish interpreter as well. But in my case... When the judge worked out that there were two of us and that there weren't going to be witnesses needing interpreting for quite a while, she actually wanted one of us to go home. She didn't want both of us to stay. That's, that's what I was going to ask. You know, this this tandem interpreting, uh, it, it's recommended, mind you, in the Absolutely. national standards. Absolutely. But, but, okay. it, but even outside of the national standards, simultaneous interpreting all day. You're talking about accused who in a trial is never unrepresented. So the accused is in the dock and does not speak during the trial unless they are going to provide it to provide evidence. But most of the interpreting is simultaneous. So for, if anybody stops to think about it, the fact that everything that is going on in the court, when the judge speaks, when the judge's associate speaks, when the prosecution There's the a lot defense of speaking speaks, going the witness, on, we know that. all the speaking that goes on is being interpreted. How can they expect a single individual to do that? For days. So, four cases. days, exactly. So you have two interpreters, even in so in Cynthia's and her colleagues' mode, they didn't have the additional technology which I had which I and the colleague that I worked with had, which allowed us to work, you know, through a little microphone and, and provide remote simultaneous interpreting while we were, um, well, so we weren't doing shushatash. We weren't whispering at this person. Oh. We were interpreting normally. But even without that equipment, Cynthia, in working with a colleague, meant that although they were working in shushatash in whisper interpreting mode, they were taking turns 
Of course. They weren't doing it for two hours. No. And, you know, then having to say. Sounds like a dream, to be honest it with you. It sounds like it's, well, it, but it shouldn't be it a, dream. a dream. It's, it's, know, it's standard. What, what you're telling me, and I'm like, oh, wow, they're in New South Wales. It's like a utopic world. Look at all these things that they're doing over there. No, I've got no, no, but, but you know what? In we, we, we asked for it. I know, I know, I know. We and, asked and, for it. But know, we shouldn't, but that's, you know, we come back oh, to well, the no, thing. I know, this I know, is, I know exactly this is, what you're And this exactly. is a fundamental thing. So the, if, if we need to go anywhere, like, you know, before the interpreter's room, before any of that, if there's any kind of thing that is that is ridiculous, that it's, it is not uh, is not standard right now, is the provision, the recognition that information is required and the recognition that anything that is over a number of hours needs two people working together. Nobody would question this in a conference interpreting Absolutely setting. Absolutely not. Nobody exactly. questions exactly. that. Exactly. Again, I guess we've got to look at the levels where this could be done. So whoever's booking originally, the courts, uh, the court system, they need to consider this in book two. Maybe they didn't consider this, okay? And then the LSP might look at that booking and go, okay, this is going to be simultaneous interpreting all day over days. Maybe then they raise the flag and go, no, you need to book two interpreters, um, as it's stated in the standards, okay? Let's yep. say the LSP uh, misses out on it too, skips that bit. The interpreter, when they get the job offer and they go, oh, hang on, this is going to be all day at the district court, county court, uh, such and such case, uh, booked for three, four days in a row, then, again, the interpreter has the responsibility to raise the flag and say, excuse me, uh, you need to organise another interpreter, and the LSP has to go back to the court and so on. Again, um, yes, I don't think it's going to happen straight away, um, and uh, I think, again, uh, you know, the interpreter is going to have to be proactive, I guess, uh, in that regard. Um, but do you think that's the way it's going to happen? Like Look, we, we, uh, Sylvia and I we, and other colleagues, we have been discussing this lately. And there is um, there's one of our colleagues called Angelo um, Barbeto, who has uh, submitted a uh, proposal to uh, OSIT for the upcoming OSIT conference for the presentation of a paper regarding uh, how to achieve um, the, to get the recommended national standards to put into the legislation, into the court, uh, court, uh, court rules. And this is the way, the only way that is going to happen. Like Sylvia has mentioned before, this is yep. the only way that something will change until that happens. And I, I still don't know what the right avenue for this is. Yeah, it's got to be beyond recommendation, I think. Exactly. Otherwise, there's, there's it's, too it's much the only responsibility way. on the, I guess we say we'll, no, the we'll do it and we'll drive it. At the moment. There's yes. a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot. And yeah, but and until do, then, we have to keep asking for it. And, and we, we have to keep asking for it. But I do encourage all interpreters to keep asking for it because I, it cannot be the case that, Every time I, I am told, you are only, and I was told this last week, you are only one of two interpreters who ask for materials regularly. Oh, okay. Okay, so if you got that from the um, LSP that we work with, that's, <laughs> you know who the other one is. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. Uh, so, so, you know, unless uh, we force change, the yeah. LSPs are not going to do anything because they only get two interpreters who, who are annoying them all the time. I do want to. I I do think so. The there there is no doubt, and and I know that both Cynthia and I and and other colleagues will you know will continue asking for things. But I do. So obviously, our main point of contact, our initial point of contact, is the agency that we have the um, the work with. And I do say, in in my case, 
I mainly work with Multicultural New South Wales, which is with Multicultural New South Wales Language Services, which is the state agencies, mm-hmm. the agency that in New South Wales uh, currently provides most of the interpreting service in the criminal system to New mm-hmm. South Wales courts, not tribunals. Other tribunals um, uh, have got contracts with other service providers um, and also to police. And in the case, my experience with Multicultural New South Wales is that they, they, uh, and and with with people within the organisation, with the panel manager, for example, is that there has been a genuine effort in their um, in in uh, dealing with these things in their uh, uh, in the relationship with the court. And just as as an example, so in March, um, I was booked for a trial. I had asked for information. And I uh, got some basic information, which was great. And I was also aware that um, uh, uh, Associate Professor Ludmilla Stern was doing um, the uh, research on uh, looking at the implementation of standards. I knew because I had come across people that were observing um, cases in the district court. I knew that that was happening. I obviously knew that um, the standards recommend the use of um, technology that will enable that, you know, that will facilitate the interpreting. So I reached out to Multicultural New South Wales as my agency and Ludmilla Stern and Sandra Hale, both involved in that, saying, look, I know that this is going on. I'm going on a trial. Um, I think it would be really good if we could get um, tour guide equipment, which is basically the portable uh, equipment that allows simultaneous interpreting to that would take place. Um, if you you know if you were interested in getting the permission from the court, I would love to do this as a trial to see how it works. See uh, you know whether the the we can start implementing this. They multicultural New South Wales immediately very supportive of it. Um, Sandra and Ludmilla put us in contact with Congress Rentals, who they'd been talking to. I, I, I knew that there had been conversations between uh, Congress Rental as the equipment provider and uh, senior court administrators to, for the courts to consider the purchasing of equipment and the incorporation of equipment. Um, so they came on board. They actually provided um, equipment um, for me to take along, I, you know, assume the responsibility of picking it up, blah, blah, going on, preparing it, turned up to court. They they weren't actually able to get a response from the court about, you know, permission beforehand. So I turned up to court with it, explained what it was, absolutely no issue with my um, uh, using that. They, they didn't have a problem with my using it. From that experience, Multicultural New South Wales has gone to buy a number of units that are now available for interpreters who are comfortable in, you know, who are trained to provide simultaneous interpreting. They are developing the guidelines about how it would be provided by this equipment that has been bought by the agency that will be provided to interpreters. You know, we won't have it for um, every single mention or whatever, but we'll be able to to ask for it, to to take it along, um, and it it makes a difference. It it makes a difference in how we can uh, provide that service. Obviously, with that equipment, if I'm the only one providing the simultaneous interpreting, I still have to stop. I still have to break. And the court will have to break because the interpreter needs a break. 
in the cases that Centre and I uh, worked, you know, in those particular cases where there were two of us working, the court never had to stop because the interpreter needed a break. Because the interpreters working in two, if one of us needed to leave um, for whatever reason before the session was over, we were able to. And generally, it, you know, you're, you're there. If you have the chance to just, you're still present, you're still there and you're supporting your colleague, but you are not 100% switched on when you're not the active interpreter, you can wait for the normal breaks of the courtroom without any problem. But you, exactly. your, your voice is resting, your mind is resting. Um, you, you know, we work in the basic conditions that we need. With, with your interpreting partner there, um, what, did that happen by chance as well or, or were two interpreters booked for that no. particular job? Two interpreters were booked because, and this, and this is what happens, the court doesn't think about, so if, okay, so I'll tell you, Cynthia so and I who, who booked the two interpreters? The court. The court. So in the but criminal system. they instigated system, it? No, they but instigated it, but because they expect, this is a thing. They attach the interpreter to the person who doesn't speak English. So if you have five peoples, five peoples, <laughs> if you have five people in a case who speak Spanish, they will book five Spanish interpreters. interpreters. <laughs> Rather than understanding, so Cynthia and I met personally at a at a at a at a sentencing hearing um, that involved eight Spanish-speaking co-accused, four of whom did not speak sufficient English. So they booked four interpreters. And the judge, who was not trained on the RMS, when the four of us started doing shushataj at the same time. <laughs> Sounds like a beehive, doesn't it? He nearly had a heart attack. So what do we need the courts to understand? And the language service providers, you don't need four interpreters, much as we liked meeting Efficiency. up. You need two Efficiency. interpreters. Efficiency. You need two interpreters. And you need to remember that the interpreter is not attached to the non-English speaker. The interpreter provides a service to the court. Oh, so okay. if you need me to interpret to six different people, I will. I interpret for 200 interpret in a conference. For all of them. Exactly. Put an, ear, yeah. put an earpiece into six people's ears, and exactly. You know, you and off we be, go. You spent a little bit of money on equipment that you're going to use for years, but you've saved money on hiring four or five other interpreters. Mm. Wow. Exactly. I think but, I'm going to post this podcast to um, all the courts and tribunals out there as well. Please do. To, please do. Watch it. Uh, I was going to also say that um, the, the courts don't listen to the interpreters generally, because we would be able to tell them all these things, wouldn't we, Sylvia? Well, they listen to some interpreters. They, you know, but, but they, Like all these things that we can come up with because we are there, we are there doing the work. We know how it works, but they, they don't take, you know, the courts haven't, they, they haven't had, or at least they haven't shown any willingness to discuss how can we, make things possible for the interpreters to provide us the services that we need? What yeah. do we need to do for you to provide the services? Help us? me help you. Um, that's, well, think- that's, what, that's where I think, you know, that's where I think that the recognition of the work that has been going on from people 
um, generally from academia, but who are very strong practitioners as well and who do, you know, and who are active within our professional association and so forth. Yeah. Um, that that work um, has made a difference. I think if there hadn't been panels um, of uh, judges, of judicial officers, um, you know, invited to different legal interpreting seminars uh, organised by the mm. universities year after year, if there hadn't been the training of new judges that happens or the training that happens through the Bar Association, um, you know, year after year, the, the, those judicial officers would not be as the, the ones who did develop the standards and who championed the standards, and there are a number of them, um, that wouldn't have happened if that work wasn't wasn't taking place. Um, but obviously that work can't take place when we're actually in the court case. Um, it is, uh, but but yeah, we we the pace of change is a is a is a bit of a is a bit of a thing there. Um, there is no doubt. Um, and just so you know, Fatih, just in case you want to, you know, do a bit of a screen share, I do have um, on my second screen um, an example of what a hearing loop is because we keep talking about it and I think it's really good for um, interpreters uh, to know can, what can this you, can is. Can you please? Yeah. Please yeah. And I also have not a screenshot, but I also have the little physical tool guide equipment that I can um, oh, plop on the... Have on it the with you? Oh, yes, yes. Well, actually, I'm very lucky because I have been working um, closely in these aspects with Multicultural New South Wales. They actually sent me a unit. So I've, so I've got six. So Cynthia and I both have a unit that we haven't been able to use it because we've been doing Call everything me. remotely. <laughs> but as soon as we're in court again, we'll be used, and I'll be taking it to mentions as well, Absolutely. and I'm sure you will, mm. um, Cynthia, as well. But if I can just quickly... Um, because the even without the um, the other kind of equipment, this is what the hearing loops, at least in the New South Wales courts, this are. This is in New South Wales. I was going yeah, to say, but mm. they're probably you know, if not like this, something very similar in courts around Australia. This is something that is not for interpreters. They are there for anybody who has a hearing impairment. Mm. I had been to courts for years and I had seen the leader signed hearing loops available. Had no idea what they looked like until. That um, sentencing hearing that I just mentioned with the four interpreters, one of our colleagues, Marcella, the first thing she did was go up to the court officer and ask for four hearing loops. Now, this is an infrared system. As you can see, it's like a little stethoscope. So this is the bit that goes um, uh, that goes uh, in your ears. So this is another thing that is an absolutely fundamental part of the interpreter toolkit, which is your little alcohol wipes. Yeah, your little. <laughs> <laughs> so that's in our handbag. For, for because... those that are listening and not watching, can you just tell us what you were holding up? Ah, sure. I'm holding up. Um, uh, alcohol swabs, basically, that I got a you know box of two hundred in a chemist some time ago. Um, have got lots of these little things in uh, whatever handbag um, I have that I'm that I'm working with because if I'm going to be putting earbuds that are not mine, I will be um, sanitizing them. Um, before they go anywhere near my ear. Many um, so, court officers will sanitise them for you. Yeah, yeah. But you cannot rely on that. No. So um, that's the uh, that's uh, certainly the, uh, you know, another, to another tool of the trade. But these, these um, hearing loops, infrared system, this um, uh, 
thing down the bottom here is basically the control for the volume. And what this means is that when you use this, and if you don't have a hearing impairment but you're an interpreter, when you use this, you are hearing everything that is going into the microphones. Now, the, those of you who have been to court, you, you'll know that the microphones in court are not there to amplify, they're there to record, mm. to create um, the record that will then uh, be used to have the court transcript. So this, you're getting the sound directly from what is going in the microphone. So even if you're interpreting at a mention, if the person is represented, the interpreter the legal representative will be at the bar table looking at the bench. The interpreter will be in the public gallery behind their backs with the, um, with the person uh, that doesn't speak English. So we may not be able to, you might be able to hear the judge, but we won't be able to hear the, um, you won't be able to hear the, the legal professionals well. The, uh, the hearing loop resolves that issue completely so even if you you know if there's no you don't have any equipment to provide remote simultaneous interpreting use a hearing loop though there may be some courts I, I know that there's a one of the large courtrooms actually in in um, local court in in uh, the central kind of area in uh, in Sydney there's a particular courtroom that doesn't have the system enabled which is which is a you know what an access issue for, for uh, people in general, but generally they work. So there might be some where, you know, they you might have an issue accessing it, um, but ask and for it. You can get them yeah. at magistrates as well, not just uh, in the yes. higher courts. Yes, yes. yes. Or, or courts, I think it is compulsory in the courts because it's an accessibility it's accessibility, issue. Yeah. accessibility exactly, issue. Yeah. So, and that's what I'm saying. You know, I've seen the science for years and years and years but it wasn't until Marcela went up and asked for it that I thought of course I can use this you know of course and the thing um, is once you start using them you don't go do not back want to go back not using them so um, that is absolutely the fundamental sound is so good that you can interpret everything you know you put me in court with a hearing loop and all the materials and I am the happiest person because I can interpret anything and everything yeah. without those two things I might as well be just somebody. Oh, we need just some material and a little bit of technology. That's Don't go need. around booking and two then, interpreters for the same job. And then a colleague. That's right. Just book two. Yeah, just so, two. And this is the other. This is the other bit of technology, um, which is oh, this, this is, is how this is yeah. how small they are. So these are really well known as tour guide system systems, basically because we will see. Um, then being used by groups that are moving around. So they've been used by interpreters um, generally when we do liaison interpreting, you know, any kind of any kind of tour, any kind of the, it's used very much in, in business settings where you might just have you might have a large delegation with a small uh, group who needs interpreting. Walking through a site maybe visits. or a site visit. Yeah. Exactly. So there will be a transmitter which um, is what the interpreter uses. So this particular, basically they all have the, um, you know, the standard. The 3.5. Whatever it is. Jack, yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's um, basically the jack for the microphone, which in this instance is a very uh, jazzy kind of Madonna microphone. So it goes, um, you know, back of your head and then you've got the microphone there. There's a lanyard. So, and extremely easy to use. It's basically switch on, set the channel, 
um, and uh, then you've got a, a, a volume control and a mute button, which is which is important. And with the the other um, the other bit is a receiver. So you can have this is the bit that the accused person would have, where again. It comes with an e-piece, but they can incorporate their own e-piece if they want. So during the trial where I use this, for example, and, I'll, and I've got a I've got a new photo that I can show you of the of the setup if you would like. Do you want please, me to do that? Please, please. Very uh, curious. So the and I um this includes um photo of my colleague uh, Ines as well. She agreed originally that we'd be uh, publishing some photos, so no qualms in using her. But basically, this is the courtroom where we worked. The dock, this is where the accused was. So and the and the photo was taken with permission while the court was um in a in a break. So I'm there being um the accused, and you can see he is the um the receiver and Ines as the so rather than sit in the dock with the accused and having to whisper in their ear, we were actually set up in this section out here, which had some fixed chairs that generally um, corrections personnel would be sitting there. Because the person was not in jail, there were no corrections personnel. Um, so the court officer actually set up, got facilities to set up a little table for us. So we sat at either uh, side of that table. We, uh, you know, had somewhere to take notes, to have our washer, um, and we were just sitting outside of the dock without any ergonomic problems, um, being able to share um, uh, practically next to each other so we could support each other with documentation, with notes, with anything, um, and, and providing that interpreting um, at, at that distance, which meant in the morning, um, I would sanitize the equipment, leave it, leave the um, the receiver over here. The accused would come in, say good morning, grab the receiver. Um, I had already switched it on, made sure that everything was working okay. He'd sit down, listen to us all day. When it was the end, return the receiver. I switched it off, say good afternoon. That was the end of it. So there's no, sorry. Sorry, you know how you were saying before the interpreter seems to be attached to the non-English speaker? Does that kind of then help that issue as well? Does Absolutely. It, does it make you look more like a court worker than someone who's attached to a non-English speaker? Absolutely. And you're not there whispering. The person um, does not, you know, sometimes a person might not understand something that is going on, not because of the interpreting, they, they wouldn't have understood. And their instinct is to turn around and to ask the person that's next to them, and Start that's the interpreter. So mm. it can be seen as though you're having a chat. You know, maybe people are having a chat, but even if you're not having a chat, there is that perception that the interpreter is there kind of having that conversation. This removes all possibility of any of, any of that. So there's no doubt that the interpreter is providing a professional service in an impartial manner. Also makes things a little bit COVID safe, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, Cynthia and uh, Sylvia, with, with all this um, technology that uh, you had access to, it's not, it's not always the case, is it? How does it feel like going back to like your standard simultaneous mode, one-on-one, you know, no preparation material? Like, what is it compared to with the complete opposite? 
Like, how do you how do you do it? You know, you've well, got all this one day, and then the next day you got nothing. Like, how do you do it? Well, like I said before, I always get the materials. That's always. right. I don't need to have materials. So I haven't gone back to not getting materials. I love it. All right. There you and go. I so. never interpret without a hearing loop. So I haven't had to go back to interpreting without a hearing loop. What I have gone back to is to having to fight for all of those things. But, you know, I will fight until I get it. And I don't take no for an answer because I know how important it is. And I know that once you show the court what can happen once the interpreter has had the preparation and the interpreter has the equipment and the interpreter has everything, once they have realized that, yes, what this interpreter is telling me is going to happen actually happens, then they're fine or they tend to be fine. But yeah. I haven't gone back to, to, to not having those things. However, and that's something I don't know whether we have time to discuss it or not, now that we are doing remote interpreting, that's all gone. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, Victoria's been in it for a long time and uh, you've been in it for a couple of months now as well in, in, in Sydney. Oh, yes. More, yeah, and, and no more in-person court hearings. Everything's gone online. Um, how's that affecting the whole implementation of the standards? There's no standards. <laughs> <laughs> so they, so I, and this is something that I have discussed with Sylvia as well and with uh, the uh, language service provider. Um, the courts, the, at least in New South Wales, the system that they have implemented is to do everything remotely and everything interpreted consecutively. So mm -hmm. even the things that need to be interpreted uh, um, Simultaneously, they are being done consecutively, uh, which is a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. It's, the cognitive load on the interpreter is much greater, especially remotely. Already by VRI, Already, it's, uh, there's so much uh, more Yeah, it's load. completely wrong. They have taken the wrong approach. Why? Because they haven't consulted the interpreters. Mm. Um, as well as uh, refusing to provide you with any information and then you just... Uh, you know, you, you log on to the uh, platform and that's it. There you are in the courtroom and with and you lose any agency that you had before in person. In person, you face to face, you are able to negotiate better. Mm. Remotely, you can't negotiate anything. You lose you have no power. You have no chance of, as Cynthia said right at the start, the conversation for the preparation material generally doesn't happen with the judge or magistrate. It happens with the court officer or the prosecution. And you don't see them. No. Yeah. No, that's right. So that's 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 the thing you would get. So the best that you can do in a remote setting is say, Your Honour, Spanish interpreter, <laughs> I'm afraid that I have no information for this case. I have no idea what the charges are, what the situation is. So you know, would appreciate a briefing before we start. And then, of course, if everything is to happen consecutively, um, I will need time for uh, to interpret. And that's the best you can do. And it, but personally, I try to remove. It, it does put us individually in a in a difficult position. But I do try to remove the personal stress from it. If you know, I I recognize if I turn up to a, a situation where I am not prepared, that I have tried to be prepared. I haven't been allowed to prepare, so I can't assume the responsibility for that lack of preparation. That's exactly so, right. So it means that if I need to stop because I have no idea what they're talking about, then I would stop and you I would, would say the interpreter has not been provided with any material that would allow her to understand what is going on. She does not understand 
what is what going is on. <laughs> I've never had to do I've never had to do that, but I would. I exactly. And you, I would and I, I would, would as well. And the thing with remote interpreting is that it's so stressful and it's and so exhausting. I find it extremely exhausting, much more than in person as well. So all of these added stresses on the interpreter's job are not being recognized either. And nobody's taking care of these things. I, I must say I don't find it I don't find it more stressful, but um, but I think we all need to um, kind of if it does add that stress, then we do need to take that into account in the in the um, we need to be aware of it and asking for what for what we need. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, ladies. It's been amazing. Um, was this the half-hour conversation? This this was the half-hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before we started recording, I've got a feeling we can talk about this for hours and days. Oh, and days. And mind days. you, before we started recording, dear viewers and listeners, there was another 45 minutes of talking. <laughs> and then I had to I had to remind my colleagues here saying, I actually haven't started recording, ladies. Can we just, you know, um, take it from the top uh look thank you so much um for your for your time and the amazing uh, bits of experience and knowledge that you have given us um there's a lot to take in there for everyone um you know for interpreters us for language service providers for courts for tribunals um for everyone included in that system the administrative work the registrars uh, the administrative staff at uh, LSPs uh, so many. So hopefully, hopefully this does get around. The, the whole idea was to get the conversation going um, and you know get the word out there to as many people as possible. Um, so in a, in a couple of sentences, because we've got to wrap it up for each of you, Sylvia and Cynthia, some recommendations. I know we've been talking. I'm scared to say the word recommendation. <laughs> some tips. <laughs> Some tips to interpreters, LSPs, court officers, because I'm going to really push this out there to see to get as many people as possible to listen to it. Um, any any last words? Any tips before before we call it a day for the day? Look for interpreters. What I would say to them is be assertive. Believe in your profession. You are not there as a subordinate to anyone. You are there to work at the same level as the other professionals. And therefore, if you believe that yourself, you will have the courage and the strength to act like a professional. Because if you are there, and like I have heard recently, uh, expecting the judge to be um, understanding and to have patience with you, that means that you're struggling. You're not mm -hmm. there to do that. So ask for what you need and be assertive and behave as one of the other professionals because you are no less than that. And thank you very much, Satya. Words of wisdom there. Um, what about you, Sylvia? I totally agree with what um, Cynthia has said, and I think something that has been said by um, by something that I'm, I'm sure we've all heard is that quality is important. It is essential in a setting which is extremely sensitive because it has implications not only for the um, for the individual if we're talking about the criminal justice system it's not just the implications for the individual but for the community in terms of the administration of justice the achievement of that quality which is 
underpins the basic principle um, of our legal system of procedural fairness. If a person cannot understand the case against them and respond in the case against them, then that natural justice is not being done. And that is a fundamental principle that underpins our legal system. Now, for that to take place when the accused, for example, or, or one of the parties in that, um, in that case does not speak the language of the land, interpreters are essential. And the quality of interpreting is a shared responsibility. And that means that it is my responsibility to be considered a professional. I have a range of responsibilities to make sure that I'm up to that level. But so does the language service provider that has the contract um, with the, with the uh, public system to provide interpreting services. It is not just about getting the contract and then putting the bodies out there. It is ensuring that the conditions for quality are there. And likewise, for the courts, it is not just about ticking the box saying that, you know, you've put a body next to the person who doesn't speak English. It's about really enabling that fundamental principle of procedural fairness or natural justice, as we might want to call it. And we can only do that if those very easy conditions for good interpreting to take place are provided. This is not rocket science. It, it's, it, it is a matter of thinking. I, I, I think that there are improvements to be made at the booking um, at system uh, level uh, that would facilitate a, a lot of this uh, taking place and then understanding that we are an important part of the system um, and that quality is a shared responsibility. Right. And that they need to engage with the interpreters. You know, avoiding engaging with interpreters means that they are not recognising that the interpreter is there to do a particular job. If they refuse to engage with you, what do we get? You see, in the, in the system is the weakest link will be the interpreter, the person who is not um, aware of what is going on. That's going to be your weakest link. And that is going to be the, the, the outcome. That's going, to be the, that's going to dictate the outcome. So what I would say to all the participants, including all the uh, legal representatives and the judicial officers, engage with the interpreter. And, you know, there are years and years of training um, all of a sudden uh, is at jeopardy if they don't know how to work with an interpreter properly or, or give them the, uh, the required documentation uh, and, and set up the, the, the courtroom for them the way, uh, the, the, in, in a most efficient way. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, Sylvia Martinez, Cynthia Lee, thank you so much. Um, I just want to keep going, to be honest with you, but we, we, <laughs> we've got to finish somewhere. Maybe, maybe um, we'll catch up a few months down the track. Um, and by then, uh, Professor Ludmilla's uh, study will have also moved along. Um, we'll get a little bit more experiences from you and we'll see, we'll see um, six months down the track maybe how everything's going. That'd be great. Right. Thank you very we much. Will, we will continue. I forgot to mention the petition, but Fatih, make sure that you put a link to yes, that yes, petition. Yes, yes, please tell us about the petition, Sylvia. And oh, I will okay. Link. Yep. All right. Well, uh, there we go. I'll just do another quick, very quick um, very quick screen share that OSIT does have a petition on change.org at the moment that is very much about improving court interpreting conditions now. So if you just look on change.org, 
um, and just put improve court interpreting conditions. It should, I'll, I'll put it the should link, come up. I'll put the link in the um, description. That, the that would be great. Description, so that, that would be great. And this, um, you know, uh, of course, um, th there are always uh, changes and things that can be made, but it is... Um, 1,300 people have um, have signed up and the idea of this will actually be to send uh, those results. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, a key thing that is being said is that um, the that basically that it is time to act on uh, those items that we've talked about. And the idea of this OSET will be sending um, this on to not just court administrators and language service providers, but fundamentally to departments of attorneys general, to ministers of justice, which is really where, um, you know, through legislation and the resourcing, the proper resourcing um, of the of the system is that these um, these things can take place. Magnificent. Thank you very much for that. Uh, dear listeners and viewers, uh, that was such an amazing chat with Cynthia Lee and Sylvia Martinez. Thank you again so much. It was a privilege and an honour to be in your presence today and to learn from your experiences. Um, so please don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel um, or subscribe to your podcast channel, like the video or the podcast so that you can follow up on the upcoming episodes um, and uh, keep an eye out for the implementation of the recommended national standards. Um, don't forget that, uh, you know, as interpreters, we also have the responsibility. And at the moment, it does seem like that we are going to be the ones driving this. But, you know, um, don't let that slow you down. Keep pushing, be assertive, um, know your responsibilities, know your rights, get your hands on the actual document, okay? Um, like I said, there will be a link in the episode description so you can download it. It's free of charge. Make notes on it. Give it some dog ears, you know, use it, abuse it, um, and get to really understand it because I think it is a very, very important document uh, for us all to get our heads around. Um, and uh, those of you that are watching who aren't interpreters, um, you know, LSPs and other uh, JOs and court officers, uh, you know, there was a few little things here for you today as well to have a little bit of a listen to. I think um, we learned a lot uh, today and there's a lot of uh, responsibility for all of us in this realm of um, the justice system. And it's not just we can't put the responsibility or the blame on just one particular uh, role player. Uh, it's, it's, it's on all of us. Um, so let's hope that the standards actually do become standards very soon. Um, and uh, looking forward to talking to you again, Sylvia and Cynthia, in the upcoming months. And good luck with everything. All the best. Please do take care. And let's hope that um, courts open up very soon and we can all get in there and do it face to face using our amazing new devices. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. Real um, absolute honour. To share this space uh, with you and congratulations to you and to all graduates for actually creating this space um, you. where you've had so many interesting uh, people come through and provide different perspectives on important aspects of our profession so um, lo lots of stuff going on in this in this space which is which is great to see thank, thank you, you very much thank you. No, thank you very much Fatih and um, I also want to say um, 
you might think twice again next time before asking two Spanish-speaking interpreters. <laughs> we might be a lot of things, but we're not going to say. That was our half an hour, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, that um, was our half an hour. It was only, you know, two hours or so. Indeed. So to, to see you again in another half an hour. Yeah. Um, thanks again and all the best to you and uh, good luck. Thank you and all the best to you. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Thank you very much Bye-bye. and um, we'll see you next time. Bye. Graduates Conversations Podcast.